0: You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast with Pastor Daniel Williams as we go through a series called God Redeems, a study through the book of Exodus. So, if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus 35. Turn to Exodus 35. That's where we're at. He did a great job. We finished it up, Exodus 34. Uh, It was really awesome. And listen, as you guys know, we're, 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 we're honing in this series, this time, this main idea of Exodus, the book of Exodus, how God redeems. I hope you know, man, there's redemption in Jesus Christ. I hope you know that he can restore and rebuild and make you new and just do great things in your life. And I've been particularly encouraged going through this study in depth just as a teacher and a follower of Jesus. Because like Pastor Robin said, man, although the Bible in the Old Testament never mentions Jesus' name, right? The name of Jesus is mentioned all over. He's all over in this book. Jesus has used this book to minister to us, even as a community, within this last year of teaching this, just building us up as his followers, strengthening us as we continue to study, to continue to learn, and yes, uh, continue to go over these messages. But it's not been 175. Let's just be real. Come on, guys. Let's just be real, all right? I know. It's okay. Um, and so let me give you the context. If you don't know where we're at in the book, it's sort of going to be important for us, and so much so that I'm actually going to step, a jump ahead a little bit to get some context and then work our way back to Exodus 35. We're in a state where the nation of Israel has now been renewed. The covenant has been renewed. And the covenant was renewed. That word is important because the covenant got broken. Uh, it broke, not broken. I apologize, my wife, Okay. <laughs> Okay, all right, I always say it wrong. I always say broke, and I do the slang thing. Sorry, I get it confused. But um, her beauty caught me, and I got unfocused. I'm so sorry. All right, Uh, the covenant got broke. People sinned pretty bad. If you know the story, there was a golden calf. They were worshiping, doing some things they shouldn't have been done, not worshiping the true and living God as he had just redeemed them. Uh, And so God, who is good, in Exodus 34, proclaims his goodness to his people, his glory, and he mentions his name. This is very, very important because many people have a false ideology of who God is, but God is a God that speaks and tells us who he is. And he says, well, I'm, I'm merciful and I'm gracious. I'm, I'm actually slow to anger and I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we took time to actually look, what do those words mean? But bottom line is God forgives. He restores, he renews. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful that this is the God that we worship, that he actually forgives us because I blow it. I mess up just like these Israelites, but our God is a forgiving God. He's a restoring God. He's a God of love. He's full of gracious. He's just merciful and his mercies are new every morning. So he renews this covenant and he transforms lives. And we see this transformation happen so much so in the life of Moses as Moses spent times with God. As he's getting this new law because the word of God had been broken. It's a symbol of how Jesus paid the price for our sin. His body was broken. He was beaten and bruised for us and our iniquity to be made new again. And so Moses goes up to the mountain again. And God says, I'm going to forgive again. In the end of Exodus 34, Moses' face literally says it shined. The Greek word or Hebrew word meaning literally it just, it just like a light bulb. It literally means changing of skin color, like because he was talking to God, the text said. He was literally transformed because he was talking and with God. And I want you to see today that this transformation happens to people like you and me still today as we behold God. As we look to God and are spending time with Him, there is a metamorphosis, a transformation that the glory of the Lord would actually meet with us and it would transform our lives, not just leaders like Moses, but broken normal people like you and me and like the Israelites that would want to worship God, but we just fall short. We just blow it. We just can't make that mark. But our God is gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. and He's abounding in steadfast love and he's faithful. And so he meets us where we're at, God being Emmanuel. And so I said Exodus 35, but go to Exodus 36. just going to jump ahead a little bit, give you some, because I think this is important as we study 35. Let's read verses 2 through 7, get the context, because I want you to see something glorious of what happens to the people, because now Moses is shining. People are understanding God is this who he says he was. There's a new covenant made, and we're going to talk about their response and how they're bringing wealth and work to God in response of his glory and who he is. Now verse 2 says this, Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people, they bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave the command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Let's pray and we'll study this text. I'm calling this message, Contributions for the Tabernacle. Jesus, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace. We thank you, God, how you change and transform lives. We pray for that, God, for our own souls, that we would behold you, that we would see more of your beauty, more of your kindness, more of your goodness and your gentleness. God, you're so patient with us. So we just ask, Holy Spirit, come. We make space for you in this moment. Magnify Jesus. Let us see more of Christ. We're here to worship you, God, and we want to worship with our minds now as it does take time to study, to mature, to develop, to grow. But God, we just want to be closer and closer to you. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind to be conformed to the image of Christ. So do that work. Let us plant seeds of faith tonight trusting you, believing you, that you speak through your word, that you are an almighty, powerful God, and you want to speak to us tonight. I thank you for this radical response, and may this not only be in the text, but be in our lives as well, that we would give wholeheartedly a response and a life of worship unto you as you call us to do great and mighty things here in our generation to do work for you, Lord, and to bring you glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Contributions for the tabernacle. We're going to get to Exodus 35, but before we do, I want you to see something. In this text, the end result, 36. Now, in this book, you guys know we've studied it, but we've seen a lot of miracles. Like a lot of crazy things that go against our flesh, even our human nature, and the laws of gravity. Things like the parting of the Red Sea. There was a, a bush that was burning but didn't, wasn't consumed. We can go on and on and on, and we did about those 10 plagues. The Israelites, they, they saw God move, and they they saw him work in these miraculous things, these supernatural things, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. They even saw bread come from heaven to meet their physical needs. The word of the Lord was written in this book, like miracles upon miracles. But I want us to catch something. Did you see this miracle? As we talk about the renewed covenant, here in Exodus 36, we see another miracle. And it's not just that they're giving tons of money it's now the people's lives are being transformed and changed as they're experiencing who God is. God's grace is transforming people's lives. So much so, they're getting now back to the work and people are responding in such a way and saying, God, stop giving. It's too much. The text tells us that Moses, they call... Uh, two workers, we've mentioned these people before, so we won't go in depth, but we will talk about them how they're going to construct the tabernacle Bezalel and Oholi, Oholiab. And they call every craftsman, skilled craftsman, powered by the Spirit to do this work to build the sanctuary or the tabernacle, the tent. These elements that God instructed on the mountain to the people because he wanted to be with the people. This was going to take a lot of work, but it was also going to take a lot of wealth. And so. God in Exodus 25 through 31 gives them the instructions of the tabernacle for his people after he makes the first covenant with them because that's what our God does. He makes beautiful covenants with his people based on who he is and not based on who we are because he wants to come close to us so we looked and we studied about these elements of the tabernacle and how they represent Christ and the priesthood, the sacrificial system. These are all important to set up what we would know as worship unto the Lord. But they're going to have to implement that instruction and obey. That's what chapters 36 through 39 are, and that's why on the second half, Y'all are thinking, how are we going to finish before Christmas? Because the second half, when we study these chapters, we're actually going to focus on um, obeying God's word and the construction of the tabernacle by covering it as the obedience of obeying what God said. We've been just studying, like the tabernacle's not been set up. We've just been studying all the instruction and all the elements and all the details. And what you're going to find in 36, 37, 38, and 39, they're just going to actually do what God says. That's an important message. Just do what God says. Like, just he's given us some stuff, do it. And so it's important for us to walk that out of what he says, and that's what they're starting to do right now. But they're doing it with a different motivation once again, a motivation of love. Not to earn God's favor, because if they had any of that in their mind, it was broken down by their own idols and hearts of sinning, rebelling against God, proving to themselves they weren't just good enough. Like maybe if there was pride in their hearts that God would just say, hey, um, you know, you're know, you my people, I chose you. He's going to later on through the prophets say, you're really not that special, but I love you anyway. But they're experientially understanding this, that they fall short of God's glory and they cannot obey the law perfectly, but yet God loves them. We as human beings need to hear this over and over again because we will do anything in our soul to have and yearn for approval and we will try to ascend to God, but we have a God that descends to us. We cannot earn his favor or his love. The Bible says we love because he first loved us and he has to show you this. He has to give you that revelation and you often receive that revelation as you just blow it. As you experience, he does redeem. He does restore. Oh, God said that. But God obeys everything in his word, and when we experience that, it transforms us. And so these two workers, Bezalel and Aholiab, and these skilled workers filled with the Spirit, they're receiving the contributions in this text from the people to build the tabernacle. And the people kept bringing these free will offerings to worship God every single morning. This offering was so large, there's so much, told, they told Moses to actually stop. If you look at your own Bibles, in verse 5, it says the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord commanded us to do. How much? Well, a lot. Some scholars say, and as we studied the tabernacle and these elements of gold and silver and bronze, there was about a ton of gold, not figuratively, but literally, to make all of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the elements, there was about a ton of gold, and scholars say almost over a little over 300, or not 300, but three tons of silver, along with thread, skin, bronze, all this other elements. It was a lot. But yet in verse six and seven of this text, it says the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. And so I want you to get this. First point, God transforms us. God's grace transforms us. What's end up happening in this situation, you remember they were actually worshiping a false god and giving goods to Aaron to build a golden calf. Now they're being transformed, giving to God and responding by giving now to God their wealth, their all this stuff. And I want to propose to you that the miracle we see here is just as great, if not greater, than the parting of the Red Sea, a transformed life. We often glory in these miracles that break the natural law. But the greatest miracle is salvation. And the Bible tells us to rejoice in our salvation, to have hope in our salvation, to preach salvation, that we can be right with God and God can transform us. And this sounds very simple and easy, but let me just just break it down in practical terms. In the last 10 years, Redemption Church has been in five different church buildings. Now part of that is because we ain't got no money. We just really don't. We we don't have no money to buy a building or to even rent a permanent lease. So we are renting from people that have graciously allowed us to do that, and that's awesome. Schools, churches, community centers, been in some houses, been in some chapels. I don't know where we're going next, but man, you know, we just keep on moving where the spirit has us. But one of the reasons why we do that. It's because practically, we haven't had the funds to secure a location to build, to do that. That takes a practical application, a wealth, a consume, to consume and to buy and to purchase something. Now, I would be ecstatic and thrilled, and I hope you would as well, if someone came in our church and in the back of the offering box dropped $100 million. (laughs) Woo! We would be, listen, that would be more than enough for us. It would be too much money. Like, well, come on, man, I guess we buy a whole city block or something, right? We ain't even need that. But listen, y'all be like, you, oh, it's so Bible. I wouldn't even, no, you guys be crazy just like on the Oprah show, okay? You get a car and you get a car and you get, if you got an ecstatic amount and proportion of wealth and gift, you would be out of your mind, drop dead, excited and ecstatic. Imagine if someone just said, hey, I know all that credit card bills you have. Let me just wipe it out. And what I'm telling you is oftentimes we celebrate so much practically more about funds, our debt being paid or something like that, than just our own salvation. The Bible says that we have a record of debt that can never be paid. A spiritual thing that separates us from God. And we actually get greater riches in Christ. All spiritual blessings are found in him. There is a hope of heaven and we actually get something greater than a million dollars, eternal life with God. We should be the most happy, thrilled people, ecstatic all the time. Not just when something like that goes good for us and God's people gave this offering because they were transformed, because they were responding to the nature and the goodness of God. So I want you to see this I want you to celebrate. I want you to glory because you can glory in many things. It's glorious when you're walking with God and you see Him work. You know, it's been really special, the prayer meetings that we've been having and and afterglow services where people are speaking in tongues and interpreting, where people are having visions and seeing things or speaking things that are prophetic and, and giving encouraging verses. And we can get even in the Christian world so thrilled about the experience of the Holy Spirit and the move of God more than we can just get about the person of the Holy Spirit and God moving in our lives. God is with us right now. He's promised it. You are secure in Christ. You don't have to prove or earn anything. God loves you unconditionally. This is called freedom. And where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. And when that catches you, it is greater wealth and value than all the money and world possessions have to offer. You don't need then that car or that building or that money to bring security and love and acceptance in your life. You have the living God. And you're okay with giving God back everything he gave because he gave everything to you. Remember, where do these people get the wealth from? From God. God was like, hey, the people in Egypt, they're going to freak out. And when they do, ask them for silver and gold and the plunder. And they're like, uh, can we get that? They're like, yes, get out of here, take it. I think sometimes people freak out, especially when we talk about money in the church, like as if the money is given, oh, but I earned and I worked. Really? Who gave you the the hands, the skill, the brain, the time, the, the energy, the effort? Like who's behind all of this stuff? Isn't it God anyway? And when you're a Christian, isn't God your whole life? So what does it matter if he asks you for some time, for some talent, for treasures? Like whatever you have, the little that you have, you should be asking him, how can I worship? That should be our response because he's that Good. So, Jesus told us in Luke 15.10 that there is great joy and rejoicing before the angels of God over one sinner that repents. When we look at heaven and what they value, they're not talking a lot about money. In fact, heaven, there are streets of gold and there are walls of jewels. It's not that significant, the stuff that we think in this earth. It's so insignificant. The glory of God is in heaven, shining bright and magnificent, and we're just walking on gold. We're just walking on it, just as we do here on the earth, on like dust. But yet we in America especially have this idol of money. But God says you can't serve money. And God, this mammon, this idolatrous spirit, and something is happening in this people that are being set free. Because Jesus would also say, wherever your treasure is, there your heart is also. Can you see it? They are giving their heart over to God as worship with their wealth. They're giving this offering. The people of God are giving it unto the Lord, and they're showing us their hearts that they're worshiping, that they're obeying, that they're contributing to the house of the Lord and obeying the instruction because God commands us to worship him. And one of the beautiful ways that we're able to do that is through finances through time, through loving one another. Specifically with our wealth, Proverbs 3.9 says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. And so our worship has to be a response. I love what Titus 2 says in the New Testament, verse 11 and 12. I have this on the screen. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. If you want to be more like Christ, if you want to follow God and live for him, you need to ask God to be strong in his grace. Because most people, they're trying harder and doing more And actually trying to even do spiritual disciplines to get more holy and better and try to earn God's love. But once you receive God's love, it says the grace of God has appeared and it trains us to walk in righteousness. It's a training ground, not your own even effort. You realize you can give a million dollars to our church. We'll receive it and praise God. But you may not even get credit if it's not unto the Lord. It's unto the Lord. It's worship. You have to decide that. And you have to experience that because it's from grace to grace, from glory to glory, from faith to faith, and even from strength to strength. That's why Paul said to his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Like, if you're going to lean on anything as a Christian, lean on grace. Lean on the favor of God. Lean on his love, on his mercy. It abounds forever. It's so full. It's so good. That's why I had to set up 35, Exodus 35, with that in mind. Because these people are about to do some crazy, amazing, awesome things in constructing the temple, bringing all their wealth. But it's the grace of God that transforms us. Because God's presence transforms us. God displays his grace to us through his presence. You see, we left off with the life of Moses... And he's this great example because he actually, in this context, and in, while the people are messing around, worshiping this false idol, Moses is like, God, I want more of you. I want to be faithful in my generation. I want to follow you. Like, unless you go over there, I'm not going. So he literally asked God, can I see your face? God's like, mm, no. I mean, I'm speaking to you face to face, but you can't see my face because you're just going to drop down, die. But here's what I'll do. I'll pass before you, and my presence will be with you, and I will proclaim my holy name to you. God answers his prayer. Why? Because God is gracious. Moses is in the presence of God so much that he glows. The best suntan ever. He literally is transformed. His skin changes. And running commentary of this text, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, actually talks about this event of Moses glowing and how it transforms. In verse 18, the end of the chapter, It says it's not just for Moses, but he says, And we, with all unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. Even your sanctification is from the Lord. It's by grace. And how do we obtain it? It's by grace always through faith. So as by faith we come to God. You know, God honors you when you come to service. God honors you when you pray with people when you walk out his commands. He, it's impossible to please God without faith, but when you trust him, man, he, he just, he can't wait to pour out his grace upon you, his favor upon you, to just honor you and to bless you. He loves when his people behold him. God's presence, spending time with him, it changes you. And he knows this. And this is why in verse three, one through three, he reminds the people again to Sabbath. Sabbath, worship. God tells them, take it really seriously. Because you know, like me, we get sidetracked with so many things and yet in the fabric of our creation, God has given us a reminder to just seek His presence, to be reminded of His grace. Let's read verse 1 through 3. It says, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done. But on the seventh, on the seventh, You shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. I mean, set apart to God. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire, meaning make this lighter fire for work in all of your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Now, we've talked several times about the Sabbath because in this book of Exodus, the Sabbath is brought up a lot. Have you noticed that? Like a lot, a lot. Exodus 16 First time in the Bible our first time to his people he commands is 16 23 through 30 it's in the Ten Commandments Exodus chapter 20 verse 8 through 11. It's mentioned again a few chapters later after the covenant, 23, verse 12. Then in 31 and 13 through thirty-seven or 17, it's like just over and over and over and repeated, and it's as if God wants to make sure by repetition we know how serious it is to seek him in his presence. So much so, if you don't get the hand in verse 2, he says, whoever does this work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. So if you don't get the, the seriousness of this command This idea that God is taking this command seriously. And why? It's because of this principle that God transforms us by his presence. God's presence transforms us. He wants his people to be changed and transformed. And there is a way of operating in grace, of trusting God. There are active practicalities. Your faith has works. So what does it look like for you to rest? Now, I would define the Sabbath as a 24-hour period where you stop work, you enjoy rest, You practice delight or grace and you worship God. There is a stopping, but there is a delighting. You stop work, but you worship God. And so you stop, you rest. Your body needs that. You delight in the grace that God's given you. It's going to look different for everyone else, but then you worship God and you contemplate the goodness of God and you remember. And God over and over again wants us to do this, to rest in Him, to know His grace, to worship Him, to, to make your life centered on His grace and not your own efforts. The command is so serious because God knows how important it is. it is for our souls to take physical time to actually receive His grace and enjoy His presence. You know, the Bible, the first thing it says that the Sabbath is, is it's holy. That means that time is set apart unto the Lord and it's holy, and God will honor that holy time that you give to Him. That's why I have absolute confidence that God's going to honor you as you worship Him, not just even at Redemption Church, but any time with any people. In any nation, and every generation, when you give God your life and your time and you honor Him and you worship Him, man, you'll be rewarded. And He'll meet you. When you seek, you'll find. When you ask, it will be given to you. Psalm 115.8 tells us that whatever we worship or behold will become like. Whatever we spend our time and our attention on, we're actually going to mirror that. So God says, mirror me. Don't get your identity up in the work, but behold me. Delight in the grace that I provide. Our God is a God that has things under control that we can stop, and we can be human, and we can rest. We can take a nap in Jesus' name. Praise God. I could trust him to be God when I don't have everything. I know I have so much to do, but the reality is I could still just stop and say, God, but I'm not in I'm not the control. You need to move. You need to work. And it's out of this place of worshiping, remembering God's grace that, and that he's given us taste buds or, or the gift of our family or just a beautiful sunset and setting time to just glory in his creation, who he is, that he provides. He wants that to be a place where we actually live out our faith. Not... Living out your faith to get some grace. Respond. Responding. This rhythm is so fundamental and foundational that he grounds creation and took a Sabbath himself establishing our world to show us its importance. That when we stop and rest, we're actually doing something spiritual for our souls. I don't know who said it, but as I was studying the Sabbath and I had so, so much, one author said it's sort of like When you go against the grain of creation, it's like you're doing violence to your own very soul. Have you done violence to your soul from being so busy, so caught up in ministry, so caught up in good things, but they're not God things? It does something to you to just not stop and enjoy the grace of God. Because then you have a relationship based off your own efforts and your own work and God's like, stop it, it's my grace. I want you to respond. I really, really, really want to show myself to you. You have everything you need. You have me. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to approve it. One person in the Bible, not just Moses, but sort of gives us this example is David. He was a man after God's own heart. Remember that verse that says that? So he's looked to as a godly example, and it's not because of the things he did, because we know Bathsheba. There was an affair. There was some other stuff that happened, but he was quick to repent, and he was quick to behold God and go to God. He would write in the Psalms some beautiful psalms and beautiful prayers to let us see his heart and see the pattern of how grace works in our life. Psalm 27, 4, he wrote this and prayed this to the Lord. He said, One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I dwell in the house of the Lord and all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. There are many cues in Psalms, if you start reading his prayer, where his heart and his priority is to seek God, even through a posture of repentance and saying, Lord, I I didn't just sin against her, I sinned against you. My life is about you. God, would you kill my enemies and would you spike them and do this and that and the other? But God, whatever you want. He's always focused on God so much so he experientially tells us what it's like to do this. In Psalm 1611, he said, you, speaking of God, made known to me the path of life, a way, a pattern, a way to follow, life, an abundant life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. Think about your idols of the heart or things that you go after, what you think people go after to get pleasure, and how those things disappoint. Sometimes we give ourselves too much credit. We go after things that we just want to go after. We deceive and justify sin, we deceive ourselves and justify sin all the time. You could really know sometimes your priority and your thinking because you do sometimes what you want to do. And our job as Christians is to repent and say, God, forgive me, change my mind. I want to turn and change my mind and go to you, Jesus. I want to glory in you, not this relationship. I need to spend my time and get my entertainment and my hope from you and not this thing. Watch those cues in your life. Be in community so they can see your blind spots. Say, man, I I think you're spending like too much time. You just told me you watched a whole season on Netflix in like one day. Probably not the best time, bro. But we need people like that in our lives. Because we think it's normal and natural because our heart deceives us because we walk in the flesh. But the Bible says to be led by the Spirit. And what is being led by the Spirit? Well, the Spirit's main role is to glorify Christ. So are you glorying in Christ? Are you going to him? Jesus told us to seek the kingdom first and all these things will be added unto us. Seek his presence, seek his ways. God's presence is important because it transforms our hearts because we glory in his grace. So he just says, stop, glory in it. And this is where people start to respond. Verses four through 19. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, "This is the thing that the Lord has commanded." So it's an imperative, it's a command. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is in a generous heart, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring to the Lord's contribution gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat hairs and tan ram, skins, and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light. Spices for the anointing oil, and fragrant incense, and ox, uh, onyx stones, and stones for the settings, uh, setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. Verse 10, let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. And this is what these chapters instruct that they were to do, to build a tabernacle, its tent, its coverings, its hook, its frames, its bars, its pillars, its bases, the ark and its poles, the mercy seat the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all the utensils and the bread of presence, the lampstand also for the light and its utensils, its lamp and the oil of the light, the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil, the fragrant incense and the screen uh, for the door, at the door of the tabernacle and the altar of burnt offerings with its gradients of brawn, its poles and all of its utensils and brace, a basin and its stands. The hanging of the court, its pillars, its bases, the screen of the gates of the courts, the peg of the tabernacle, and the pegs of the court, and their cords. Finally, their work garments for the ministry in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, the garments of his sons for their service as priest. I was just thinking, y'all try to teach all that in less than many. It's a lot, right? Do you just feel overwhelmed? This is the project they had to, to, have to do. This was the command of the Lord. But listen, God's people are to respond to God's grace. So God gives them an opportunity to respond and says, well, you can do this. And it's a lot. There's a lot of opportunity. They're now going to get a command for much wealth and much work to be taking place. And God says to the people who is of a generous heart, A generous heart let him bring the Lord's contribution. God was allowing his people in this text and in this command to respond and give them an opportunity to worship and contribute. Sometimes we don't think about that, that the commands of God are actually opportunities to experience God's grace. God was allowing his people to respond. I think about this sometimes because he could have just literally made all this stuff. Like, didn't he make the entire world and just, like, speak it, and then, boom, it was there? But he didn't do that for the tabernacle or the temple. He actually commanded, gave instruction to the people to do that. And I, and I love that, and I hate that all at the same time. I love that God uses us for his glory and gives us this opportunity, right? Little fish, little loaves, man, multiply it, feed the thousands. He uses our lives as his way of displaying his grace to his people. But I hate that, because he uses our lives to display His grace to people, our lives, like imperfect. We're not God, we just know that. And if you walk time any time in this life comparing your life to Jesus, you are just toast, man. I mean, I'm stingy, I am unkind. I fall short all the time, and it's not just me. It's all of you too, okay? The church, the people of God, it's just a group of sinners saved by grace, and it's frustrating at times, and we could be mad at the church because we're all in this crazy thing of process of sanctification. God said you're holy, but now i got to walk by faith and out, and man, when I do, it's glorious, and God receives the glory. But when I don't, wow, it's ugly. It's shameful disobeying God in the flesh, doing my own thing. And yet, in that opportunity, God still chooses to allow us to represent him, to worship him, to obey him. He chooses to use us. Like, he chooses to use our budget with the funds that come in to receive, by faith, to advance his kingdom. He chooses our lives and our brokenness and the little that we have, and he uses glory. And I just want to let you know, you don't have to defend God. There's a reason why he does these type of things. You don't have to be ashamed of the church. And you don't have to be ashamed of your life. You have nothing to prove. God chose it that way. God chose to love you, to allow you to be a part of this kingdom in that way. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 through 29. It says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Like, we just receive, we just give God glory when God uses us, imperfect people like me and you, and when he pours out his grace on our lives to give to other people. And so listen, I wrote this down. Our obedience and our worship do matter. Just because God chooses this mean does not mean it does not matter. The command for these supplies was necessary for the tabernacle. In verses 10 through 19, they needed these pieces to represent the glorious Christ that was to come and the sacrificial system, and the royal priesthood. Like, this is not just like, oh, well, I'm just throwing you a bone. Our lives matter and have a purpose. Your life does matter when you live sacrificially, when you walk by faith. And Moses tells the people to take it seriously. And what's crazy in this moment is he doesn't start passing a plate. He doesn't manipulate. He lets the people go home and process it. Read with me the rest of this contextual of story verses twenty through twenty nine. After all of this command, of all the needs that were needed, of all the stuff they were going to build, then the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting. For all of its service, for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart. They brought, I don't know that word. Brooches? Brooches? What is a brooch? A pen, like a that That's what I thought. I remember last time talking about Chrissy about that and art and stuff like that. Amazing. Okay. Brooches mm-hmm. and earrings. Should I know that word? Mm-hmm. Is that a very common thing in the, the girl thing? Hey man, I grew up in the hood, man. I don't know, bro. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what a brooch is. Old-fashioned? Look at me. I'm I'm just so young at heart, I don't know things. (laughs) Bless my little spirit. Youthful spirit over there. Okay, brooches and earrings, signet rings, armlets, all sorts of gold objects every man dedicating an offering of gold to the lord and everyone who possessed blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine linen or goat's hair or tan ram skins or goat skins brought them everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze bought it brought it as the lord's contribution and everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it and every skill woman spun with her hands and they all brought what they had spun in blue and in purple and in scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the women whose heart stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair and the leaders, well, they brought uh, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod, and for the breastplate and the spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant scents. All the men and the women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Moses allowed God and his spirit to work in the people's hearts and to be guided and led by them. He let them receive the command and let them process, pray through it to bring a free will offering What was ever on their heart? Were they going to listen to God or were they not? He didn't manipulate. Notice this. I think this is very important. People, especially God's people, need to be learned and taught how to be led by God and not manipulated. And they need to be taught by the grace of God. Because the world manipulates and says, well, if you do this work, then I'll love you. That is not grace. So God clearly all this different stuff. He could have said, do this or I'm not going to renew my covenant. He didn't say that. The covenant was already renewed. He already proclaimed who he was. He already displayed his love. But yet they had to learn, will I give unto the Lord and to worship? You know, this is one of the reasons why we don't pass a plate weekly. And there's nothing wrong with that to give people the opportunity to worship God in that way. But we want you to be led by God to process, to pray, to see the needs, to actually say, Lord, what would you have for me to give so that you can know what God wants you to do? We want you to be led by God. We want you to to take the commands of God and teach scripture in this way, but you have to see God in your giving. I think there's nothing wrong what Moses is doing. If you notice that long list, that was a big, long list of needs, wasn't it? I mean, think about all that difference. Like he went down like, from, like, from the details, like, I need some pegs. I need some goat skin. It's not even just gold and silver. He's talking, like, I here's a long detail. There is nothing wrong with talking about your budget and saying, guys, we need this. We need that. We need this. As many of you guys know, because you all come to the annual budget meeting, because it's your favorite meeting of the year, right? No. Why, well, What's wrong with you, man. Every year, I'm like, oh, guys, this is so amazing. God has provided. What a blessing. Let me show you all the stuff and how we're going and do this different stuff. And, like, hardly anyone shows up. God provides in such a miraculous way, and there's nothing that's saying, hey, this year we wanted to buy a new camera to reach more people for Jesus. Next year, we're thinking about doing on two mission trips to meet some missionary needs and doing this and how we're spending our money. Or when Pastor Robin was like, hey, in our budget, it's not really budgeted for Pastor Daniel to go to uh, the footsteps of Paul trip. But man, it would be so awesome to send our pastor there. And it's going to be a great, a fraction of their price, but it's still going to be like 2000 bucks. If any of you all want to give, make a special offering. Or when we have missionaries come up here and say, hey, this is the need. This is that. This is what Moses is doing. There's nothing wrong with saying, I have a need. This is the reality of ministry. If he didn't have these supplies, he couldn't build the tabernacle. And it was the means of God's grace through his people. So, but he didn't manipulate it. He just said, will you worship the Lord? Moses left the people, let the people know the vision, what the needs were, but he let the people see God. And I think this is an important principle for you and I today. Like 2 Corinthians 9.7, it says, Each one must, as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I love what David Guzik said about this text. He says, This offering came from God's command, not from Moses' clever fundraising techniques. This shows God's normal way of channeling resources to his work by the gifts given from his people with a willing heart. And this is a glorious thing that gives glory to God when people are very generous. I love telling people, especially non-believers, about our church our small little church and saying we're self-sustained because you know they think we're you know Calvary Chapel oh are they giving you a budget are they doing no like people in our church have been transformed and changed by Jesus so much that out of their love for the Lord they just give money because they want people to know God and so they actually pay for the salary and they pay for the bills and, and they want to support these missionaries and we collectively gather all this stuff and we put a budget, and every year, God provides. It's amazing. It's such a gospel witness. That is much different than manipulation and getting $100,000 to meet a budget. It just is, because there is a power of the gospel that says our God is so real, and he's wooed our hearts that we actually want to respond to his grace and love him and be lovers of him. God, how can I love you right now? How can I love you through my life, my finances, my my words, my action, and my parenting, and my job? Like, what does it look like to worship? And it matters how we worship God. God's people are to respond to God's grace. So that is what the Israelites did. This is why there was more than enough. Verses 20 through 29, the text says that everyone came whose heart was stirred. Everyone whose spirit was willing as many as had a willing heart all the women whose hearts were stirred it was a free will offering to the lord whose hearts were willing one commentator said the willingness of the people is mentioned repeatedly in verse 21 22 26 and 29 it was clear that this was unto the lord in fact the text says it was the lord's offering it was unto god it was a free free will offering unto the lord You need to be reminded that when you give, it is to the Lord. It is unto the Lord. We want to be wise and we want to steward the finances, but when you give, you give unto the Lord. And it says, everyone gave. This reveals who gave. It just wasn't just one person or one big check, but it says both men and women. Every man who had found blue or purple or scarlet. Everyone whom found acacia wood. All the women who were gifted artisans. The rulers, well, they brought oxen uh, onyx stones. It wasn't just one person, but it was a community of people that gave out of a heart and love for the Lord. This is a powerful witness. We need everyone to make a great impact in our generation to give and to worship God. Not just one person, not just the leadership team. Our church, if we want to have a great impact, we need to be responding to God's grace continually and not just some of us, but all of us. Can you imagine the effect if we all gave willingly? If we all made disciples? If we were all loving people and walking in his ways, it's called power. There is a salt and a light that we are supposed to do and we're supposed to remind ourselves to not forsake the fellowship of the brethren, but to actually stir one another up to do these good works that God's called us to do. So what has God called us to do? You know, it reminds me of the woman that Jesus actually saw his disciples Uh, a teaching moment. He saw this woman giving an offering and it was of two copper coins, translated like a penny to us. In Mark chapter 12, verse 43 through 44, it says, he called his disciples to him. Jesus called the disciples and said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they are contributed, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had all she had to live on. We are all to give what we can, sacrificially. And this is what I think is so beautiful about a, the tithe. Tithe simply is a Hebrew word for tenth. It's not saying as a Christian or as a member you have to give $100,000 or $100. No, it's a tenth of your income. It's starting with the first fruits to honor God. And he loves it. And he honors it and he commends it. It's a posture of honoring God with everything that we have. And so the people in this text, they gave what they could have, but they did it together. Not everyone gave gold. Did you notice that? Not everyone gave the precious metals like silver and bronze, but some had some skin, some had some wood, and they gave it all together, and it was precious in God's sight. And this is a great pattern for us to follow. See, because the heart of this chapter is response. God commands them and reminds them to seek His presence, to take a Sabbath, to remember His grace, and now we're seeing that the people are going to respond at the very end of this book with a great contribution, great wealth, and ultimately great work that would last generations. It's a great pattern for us to seek and to respond, to, to pursue God and then proclaim Him, to seek His presence. And then to find out, God, well, how will I respond to you? What do you want me to do? So rather than a response of an offering from this text, I think the focus that Jesus would want us to have is how has he been gracious to us? As we close and take communion and think about how Jesus was so giving and generous towards us and the effects of that offering, his own blood, his own life, how could we Ask Jesus, what do you want me to do? How can I respond today? God, how have you been gracious? How do you want me to live for you? What do you want me to give? And may, you may ask, maybe you are a little stingy like me at times. You may say, God, like, do you want me to give an extra offering? Do you want me to give tithes or to worship with my finances? Maybe you've never taken a step of faith in that. And you can do that. But what about like, just asking God. And not even defining our relationship with just offering, but what do you have to contribute? Maybe you have some extra time in this season of life, or maybe you have your home to be used. Like, how would you want to have the Lord respond, uh, tell you to respond? Ask Him. And so, Lord, if you want to come up, we're going to sing a song and just give us time to, to focus on Jesus. I will say this, man, if you have not repented and turned your life To Jesus, this is the best way to respond. To repent, to call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. The Bible says whoever goes to Jesus and asks him to come into life, he will cast no one away. And hopefully all of us are here because we're responding and we receive that grace. But if you have not received salvation, man, today is the day. Give Jesus your heart. Give Jesus your life. But if you have, do it again. Like, go to God again. It's a relationship. Behold him what does Jesus want you to do? Have you asked him recently, what do you want me to do, Lord, in this season? Am I still on the path of the ways of righteousness, the way that you called me to? How can I best fix my eyes on you, Lord? What is my life like? That we should be meditating on God's goodness and applying it to our hearts. And as we pray and as we seek together, the Holy Spirit does show us how to walk with him, how to live for God. And he does empower us to respond. If he calls you to do something, he'll equip you to do it as well. And so let's just take this time to pray, to seek God. We're going to have the elements of communion in the back because I think there's no greater thing that we can focus on as a church is God's grace and the sacrifice on the cross. We are asking God to live for him because he already lived for us. A life that we couldn't live. Fully God becoming fully man bearing our shame, our guilt, our weight on the cross, displaying that grace for us. We love because He first loved us. And so we're coming and asking this question not to earn God's favor, but from God's favor. God, You've done so much for me. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice to You? How can I consecrate my life to You in this moment, in this season? I know that I've failed in the past or I've done this highlight in the past, but I want to live for You today. What does that look like? Examine your heart. The Bible says before you take communion, you should examine your heart to not take communion in an unworthy manner. There is a God that loves you so much. Despising the shame, He took your shame. He died for your sin. And He loves you. And He wants you to live from this place of love. So Father, would you teach us in our hearts what this love looks like? What true freedom is, Lord, to behold your beauty, the beauty of the Lord. Lord, we want to know what this grace is, and we want to respond, God. So much so, as this text says, the world notice; these skillful workers notice. Lord. We want to be a community that people notice you because of the transformed lives happening here in our community. So start with us, God. That's what revival is. We examine our hearts. We want to repent. We want to turn to you. There may be some good things that are taking our attention, but they're not God things, things that you've told us to. Maybe we're even doing things that other people put the weight on us to get so caught in ministry, but we need to let go and allow you to guide us. I pray in this next moment as we examine our hearts, as we remember your grace, as we take communion, that Holy Spirit, you would speak. That we would look to you And you would give clear guidance of how to respond. Be honored and glorified, Lord, as we do this.